I'm going to get you to open up into the book of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is towards the end of the Old Testament. And, and it's uh, just uh, after Habakkuk and just before Haggai. If you can find those, you'll be pretty close to it. There's only three little chapters there. That's got a, quite a lot of information as usual as the word of God is there for us. But we're going to open up here in chapter 1 of Zephaniah and verse 14. And we read here that the great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hasteth greatly. Even the the voice of the Lord, the mighty men or man, shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of clouds and gloominess and a day of clouds and thick darkness. And, of course, uh, we go down a little bit further for time in verse 17. And I will bring distress upon men, uh, that they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out as dust, and uh, their flesh shall be as dung or refuse, and neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. And uh, we see here, as we're just introducing some thoughts here, that uh, we're reading about the end days. We know that we're living in end times. We talk about it a lot. We see so much on our uh, televisions and read it in our newspapers uh, and the magazines of a world that's really in big trouble. And, uh, you know, even though that men try to walk hand in hand as the United Nations, uh, there's no unity, there's no peace. All these things, the Bible says, are going to culminate on that great day of the Lord. And it's bringing out here in Zephaniah that it is near, it is near, even the day of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. We sang before about the trumpet that will sound when we sing about the days of Elijah. And the Bible is talking about that here in verse 16, the day of trumpet and the uh, alarm against the fenced cities. Now, we've brought a, this prophecy out relating to the time in which we're living and uh, against the high towers relating to September the 11th, 2001 and uh, the terrible destruction that took place at that particular time. And uh, we know that uh, the world is in a real state. The world is in a real mess. But the point that we are leading to is that the day hasteth greatly. In other words, the day of the Lord's actual return is closer every single day that we have upon the face of the earth. And it is a day of wrath and trouble and distress and problems, but it's also a great day. And this is the other aspect that the Bible brings out. The Bible talks about there is a great and a terrible day. Now, the terrible day, of course, is for those that know not God, the Bible says, nor will obey the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, because they're lost. And we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, They're told of their fate. And uh, there's all sorts of troubles coming on the earth. In fact, uh, verse 18 uh, from another version says, yes, a sudden end will will he make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The Lord uh, here is describing a destruction that will sleep, sweep through the earth in the days of God's wrath. And yet the Lord is faithful to his promises that there will be a remnant that will be restored. 
there will be a remnant that will come through the fire. And as it tells us in verse 18 that their, their silver and their gold just won't be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. The saying is money will buy everything, but it won't buy anything on the day that Christ comes back. Uh, you know, it, it tells us very clearly that when the Lord's hand is revealed, uh, this uh, world will reel and shake like a drunken man. And, uh, you know, those that do wickedly in Malachi will be like stubble burned up upon the face of the earth. And we're reading here of two aspects of God's word. On one hand, we're reading of the judgment of God upon a world that has become totally corrupt in so many ways, as we've been just talking about even in introducing things. But at the same time, as that there is the judgment of God upon the world, there is also God's mercy upon the world. And these are the two themes that run through the prophets of the Old Testament, that there is the judgment of God on one hand, but there's the mercy and the compassion and the love of God on the other. And uh, we need to understand clearly that if we want to be with the Lord, we've got to be ready on that day. We can't hold back and say, look, uh, I'll wait until the day approaches. If he's coming in 2008, well, I'll eat, drink and be married till 2008 starts. Then I'll behave myself. The Bible talks about a salvation that requires us always to be in tune with God's word. It tells us that when we see these things come to pass or about to come to pass, that the attitude we should have is that we should be looking up. In other words, we should be looking to God on that occasion because our redemption, the word redemption meaning salvation, is, is much nearer. It's very near when all these things start, start to happen. And what a tragedy to go through life and be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, you're not there on that day when Christ comes through the clouds. That would be the greatest tragedy, I believe, of everything, to know God's mercy and God's love to know that God judges wrong and to put yourself on this side of the ledger just before the Lord comes back. What a tragedy it will be. Let's go on to chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather yourselves, O nation not desired. And it says, Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes as chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord, or ye the meek, or the humble of the earth, or those that have had mercy given unto them. It says, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness, that it may, or that it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And, of course, this is an advice, an exhortation, that if we're slipping a bit in our walk with the Lord, to go through a time of repentance. In fact, the Amplified Bible puts verse 2, the time for repentance is speeding like the chaff whirled before the wind. In other words, things are happening so fast, and have you ever seen chaff come out of the back of a, a winnower? Uh, as soon as the wind hits it, it all scatters everywhere. And uh, this is what the Bible is saying, that, that things are happening like the speeding uh, through the, the air of the chaff by the wind. And it says, therefore consider. 
In other words, take into account what's happening around about you in the world. Consider it. And that's what's very, very important as we read it here. That we've got to understand that we need to, as it says in verse 3 there, seek ye the Lord, ye meek of the earth. And another part of verse 3 is put that it may be you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Hidden means that you're set apart and protected in the day of the Lord's anger. The Bible says God knows who are his. God fills us with the Holy Spirit. God makes us anew of creation. The old things have passed away. But nothing is hid from God. And God knows everything about us individually. He knows what we're like even as a church and our attitude and what we are as people. And it's so vitally important that we need to be ready. We need to be able to stand. We need to consider our position all the time as we're living at the time of the end. Let's look over briefly to the next chapter, to chapter 3. And a couple of verses here in verse 8. In verse 8 we read, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I will rise up uh, to the prey. And it's an interesting terminology that the Bible uses even in uh, scriptures, that it tells us that uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again, the eagles will gather to where the carcass is. For those that walk in the Lord, they shall mount up with wings like as of eagles. And we're going to meet the Lord on the day that he comes back. And so it says, wait ye upon the Lord. Wait in the day that I'll rise up to the prey. And it says, for my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the world shall be devoured with the wrath or the fire of my jealousy. Then, For then I will turn to the people of pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And so again we're seeing two sides of God. On the one hand we see this judgment that is so definite that God's fury comes up in his face. We read in the book of Ezekiel, where God says, enough is enough. Uh, I won't have any more of this. The last person enters into the kingdom of God. God shuts the door on the kingdom of God. And then, of course, he sends down the destruction. As we read in the book of Revelations, that the angels of heaven are going to stand by the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, are ready to destroy the world at the commandment of the Lord. But the other angel comes from the east, which is Jesus Christ in type. And he says, don't hurt the earth nor the sea nor anything in it till I have finally sealed the servants of God in their forehead with the Holy Spirit. And all that God is waiting for at the moment is for that last person to enter in to the kingdom of God. And this is why it's so important that we understand how the difficulties that are in life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us when Christ comes back. That's the judgment, sir. And in verse 9, talking about the mercy of God, it brings it out in, in another version when it puts it, for then changing the impure language, 
I will give to the people a, a clear, and I'm reading for another version, a clear and a pure speech from pure lips that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one unanimous consent and one united shoulder bearing the yoke of the Lord. And of course, we know that what God has given unto us even now is a pure language. When you pray in an unknown tongue, your, your understanding is unfruitful. We don't know what we're saying when we pray in tongues. We say this also for the benefit of those that are new. Our understanding is unfruitful. Over 40 years of praying in the Spirit, I still do not know what I'm saying in the Spirit, but most importantly, my Bible tells me that God does. And God knows even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And God knows every word that you speak. And because the mind is corrupted and any language we learn is corrupted, that uh, God wants us to praise him with a pure language, undefiled. So when we pray in unknown tongues, our spirit, God's spirit within us, I should say, is talking direct to God in this pure language with one consent, with God's agreement. And that's the way that he wants his people to be of a day in which, as it tells us very clearly, their impure language will be changed forever when we're there with the presence of the Lord from pure lips that call upon the name. We all agree when we have a unanimous consent to be united and be part of that kingdom of God. Let's have a look back in Psalm 91. Psalm 91. A little bit different today, a little bit of prophecy mixed in with an encouragement. Psalm 91 is a wonderful chapter. This particular book, or the time written by King David of Israel, was 3,000 years ago. We're reading comments 3,000 years ago of a revelation that King David has of the time of the end. He also knew who his God was. And we can draw upon these words and see what the happy state is of those that are righteous and those that are godly before God. We read here in verse 1, we'll read this chapter, it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So if we belong to the Lord, then we have this divine overshadowing of God. It brings it out in the scriptures in a moment that he's like the mother hen and we're under his wings and we're protected from all things. If we dwell in the secret place of the Most High, then we're under the shadow of Almighty God. And David says, I will say of the Lord, this is what he knew about his God. And we've got to remember that David did not have the Holy Spirit as we do. But he says, I will say of the Lord that he is my refuge. He's my fortress. He's my God, and in him will I trust. I just know I've got complete confidence in my God and what my God will do. And it goes on to say that surely he shall deliver thee from the, the snare of the fowler. The fowler was a, a person that trapped birds. So we're not going to be trapped like the trapper does the birds. And it says, and from the noise and pestilence that's coming upon the earth. It says, and he shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shall thou trust his truth his word shall be thy shield and thy buckler as we have the armor of god to withstand 
For thou shalt not be afraid of the terror or for the terror by night, nor the arrow that flieth by, by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. And it talks about different times of the day, whether it's day, whether it's night, whether it's morning, whether it's noon. We've still got that protection. We don't have to be afraid if we belong to the Lord. Because somewhere in the world, as we've made the point often, that the day that the Lord comes back might be noon here, but might be night in another part of the world, it might be morning in another part. It doesn't matter. God's always there wherever you are, as it brings it out. And it's talking of this day, this great day of the Lord, the day in which that God has had enough with mankind and uh, his problems and says, we've got to rub it out and start a new kingdom upon the earth with my son as the king of kings. And it says here on that day in verse 7, very well-known scripture, a thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. The Bible tells us that we rise up in the air to meet Jesus Christ. And as the great destruction is happening upon the face of the earth, from above we will, with our eyes, look down upon the world and the destruction and the reward of the wicked. Why is God doing this for us? It tells us here, because we have made the Lord, we read here in verse 9, which is my refuge, the dwelling place of God is within us, even the most high thy habitation. Our body becomes the temple of the living God. There shall no evil befall thee, we read in verse 10, and neither shall any plague or pestilence come nigh thy dwelling. As described in the book of Zechariah 14, of a day in which men will stand on the feet, their feet, and the natural flesh will melt from the body, the eyes and the holes and the tongues and the mouth doesn't give a very nice picture there. But what it's telling us that we don't have to worry when the plague is affecting those on the earth that are not part of the kingdom of God. He says, for he shall give, in verse 11, his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. We've got the angelic host to care for us and to watch over us. The angels are called the reapers of the harvest at the time of the end as they go to the four corners of the earth to gather the elect of God, to take them up to meet their saviour, Jesus Christ, in the air. And the Bible describes all these things that we can show you in the scriptures. It says, There shall no evil befall thee, neither any plague come upon thee, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all the, 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 thy ways, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. In other words, uh, we're delivered from any effect of even uh, a stone coming upon us. And thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, which is a symbol of, the, uh, of Satan and the, the uh, effect of the evil one in the world. And uh, the young lion and the dragon shall they trample under feet, as we know that we have the victory, the spiritual victory for Jesus Christ. And again, these are references that Christ would bruise the head of the serpent and put him under his feet, Read that right back in Genesis. Because he has set his love upon me, David writes. And we can put our name here as we walk in the things of God. Because he has set his love upon me. And therefore will I deliver him and I will set him on high because he has known my name. 
He knows every one of us by name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him and I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him and honour him and with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. The long life is everlasting life. The salvation is forever as the Bible is bringing out here. And so the promise of God is clearly very, very true and very fitting for those that know the Lord and want to walk in his ways. Haven't got time, we could dwell on a lot of the aspects there. Let's go back to the book of Job, just back a book, and uh, chapter 19. Job chapter 19. In verse 23, some wonderful verses here about the confidence that Job had in the resurrection. A lot of writers in the Bible tells us that this particular book, the Job, book of Job, might even be older than the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and so on, a very old writing. But what we see here is the writings of a man that uh, had tremendous patience and tremendous faith in God, but he also had a vision of what was to come. And we read here in verse uh, 24, it says, Oh, that, uh, 23, I should say, Oh, that my words were now written, that they were printed in a book. Well, we could drop a message back to him and say, Job, it got through. We've got that message now. We've got it written in our book, God's book. And it says that they were graven uh, with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Well, they are part of the rock of God, Jesus Christ, forever. They're his words. He said, in verse 23, the powers leading, leading up to, he says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Thousands and thousands of years ago, this man knew the one to bring salvation was alive. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in the latter day, in the last day, upon the earth. As we meet Christ in the air, for those that don't understand what the scriptures say, the Bible then says, after the destruction, that Jesus Christ comes down to the earth. And that's why he's talking about his Redeemer, Jesus Christ, one day standing upon the earth. And it says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So he knew that he was going back to the dust of the earth. We came from dust, we returned to the dust, as the Bible says. But he knew there was going to be a body not flesh and blood, but a body that was going to see his Lord. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he will one day stand upon the earth. I'm going to see it because my Redeemer liveth. And it goes on to say, in my flesh I will see God, whom I will see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins or my life shall be consumed in me. And this was the heavenly vision that this man had so many thousands of years ago. It's a vision that David had 3,000 years ago. But it should also be the vision that we have now, that if Jesus came back, we're ready to meet him. We should have, like Job had, a faith in the resurrection of the Saviour. And are there things that are more important than that? as being ready for the Lord's return? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. 
We're going to ask, is our faith in vain? You know, just a little bit of trivia, that in the Old Testament, there are 1,845 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And 17 books make a prominence of mentioning the second coming of Christ. 1,850 references to his second coming. In the New Testament, there are actually, if you put them all together, 260 chapters in the New Testament and there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ in the New Testament. So we put it all together, overall, for each prophecy of the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies covering his second coming. Eight, the new beginning, and that's the way that we'll have when Christ comes again. Let's have a look into the last chapter in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Revelation and and chapter 6. Now the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read in the scriptures. Also it tells us right from the beginning that it's an unveiling of things that are to happen. The word revelation means to unfold, to unveil or to reveal. And in chapter 6, which we'll go through sometime, it talks about the four horsemen of the book of the apocalypse, as it's referred to, and how that each of these horses symbolically represented a time in Roman Empire's history, starting victorious on the white horse and ending up on the pale horse of death. So there was the rise and the fall of the great and the mighty Roman Empire. And John's seeing these things in this vision, and he's amazed at it all. John, of course, wrote the revelation on behalf of Jesus Christ. And we just want to pick up the latter part after that this had happened. There's a question is, maybe because that this mighty empire has fallen, that the kingdom of God will now come upon the earth. And we read it here, if we start reading in verse 13, it says, And the stars of heaven, he sees in this vision, fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree causeth her untimely figs, or casteth, I should say, her untimely figs, when she's shaken of a mighty wind, and saying, it's just the same. The heavens being shaken like a tree that has fruit that's not even ripe, and yet the fierce winds knock off the unripe figs. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island moved out of their places. And we read in the kings of the earth, the natural kings of the earth, and the great men, the politicians, and and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bomb man, even slaves, and every free man. And this day it says they're going to hide themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. This is their guilty fear. This is their uncertainty of where that they are at. And so they're going to try and hide even from God. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Talking here of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that sits upon the throne. It says, For the great day of his wrath is come. And again the question is asked, And who is able to stand? Who is able to stand is the question we've got to ask ourselves. Are we one of them? The word stand here, able to stand, comes from a Greek word, something like histomai, 
And it means to abide or to continue or to be established. And that's what it's meaning is who is able to say, I abide in the Lord, I'm continuing in the Lord, I'm established in the Lord, and I know whom I belong to. And so, like the time of the Roman Empire is the world today. The trouble is not outside of the empire. The trouble was within the empire as it fell apart within itself. And, of course, the real problem today is the same. The trouble's in the world. The real problem is the moral and the spiritual decay of this world. And man is confused. He doesn't know which way to go. The word of God is confusing him. It's like we read even when the the disciples were told just before Jesus went up into heaven that he was going to leave them, they said, is this when the kingdom of God will come, when you send the Holy Ghost? And, of course, Jesus was able to say, it's not for you to know the times on the season which the Father has in his own hand. So man's been trying to work out when will Christ come. We only get signs. We don't know exactly when. The Bible says that. But it even tells us in the book of Second Peter that in the last days there'll be scoffers walking in their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? We, we, you know, we've heard about this. For It goes on to say, for the time that our fathers fell asleep until now, all continues, everything continues as it was in the beginning of creation. What it goes on to say in the book of Peter is, for this they are willingly ignorant of. They're willingly ignorant. They don't want to look to the word of God to find out what God's word says. They'd rather ridicule the word of God. After September the 11th, there was a program on and it was to sort of boost the morale around the world and there was a a concert called the Songs of Praise and the uh, leading performer at that particular concert was Sir Keith Richards and Sir Keith Richards, uh, the rock singer that's, uh, you know, getting old now, he's my age, but anyway... He also claims to be a Christian. And when he stood up there at this concert, I wrote it down because I thought, he doesn't know God's word. He said, one day we're going to be able to ask God, why did he let this happen, September the 11th? Maybe we will know one day. The tragedy is that people talk about believing in Christ and they don't even open up the word of God there. As the Bible says, they're willingly ignorant. They can see the state of the world, but they uh, remove themselves far from it. But the world, even though it's heading for destruction, there is a way to stand in the Lord. That's the important message of the Bible. Let's have a look back in Psalms, Psalm 76, in verse 7. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. In other words, if we know that we've come short of the glory of God, and we know things are happening, It then says, because of this penalty of sin that's upon mankind, and who may stand in thy sight? The psalmist writes here, when once thou art angry. Who's going to be able to stand before God when God gets angry? Is what it's telling us here. Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven, and the earth feared and was still. And when God arose to judgment, He's rising to judgment to sake all the meek of the earth. God will be the judge. And he's coming to save them that are 
the humble. Save them that have made their peace with God. Save them that are continuing to walk on in the ways of the Lord, the meek of the earth. In verse 10 it says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. You've got to vow your promises to God to walk in his ways. Pay your respects to God. Let all that be around about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. The fruit of our lips continually to our name, we read, is the greatest honour man can give to God. He says he shall cut off the spirit of princes and he is terrible to the kings of the earth. Their position won't save them in that day as as silver and gold will not save mankind. Another version puts verse 8 this way. It says you've caused sentence to be heard from heaven and the earth feared and was still. The world does not have an answer to God unless they're prepared to do it his way. Let's have a look back in the New Testament, Philippians in chapter 4. Start in verse 3. It says, And I entreat thee, also, entreat thee also, this is Paul writing here, true yoke fellow. Yoke fellow is someone that's equally joined together in their faith and their belief. And that's what he's writing to at the church of Philippi. True yoke fellows, them that have not only saying they're Christians, but are Christians. Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you do not enter the kingdom of God. Paul made that very clear. Without the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to God at all. Now he's writing here to true yoke fellows. A yoke is what they put upon the horse of a, uh, the uh, the, uh, whole, the neck and the shoulders of a horse, a yoke when they pulled the plough. When they put two together to work the plough, they were called yoke fellows. We're pulling the plough together in the kingdom of God is what it's bringing out here. Help those women which laboured with me in, in the gospel, he's saying, with Clement also, Paul's writing to the church, and with other, my fellow labourers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Whose names are in the book of life. In verse 5 it's saying the Lord is at hand. It's saying remember the Lord is coming soon. We read even going back into the Old Testament. That there is a book called the book of remembrance. In the book of Exodus. And it says, those that don't follow God, their names shall be blotted out of the book of of life or the book of remembrance. God has got a book of life for those that believe. Your name is recorded in the book of life. It's called in the book of Revelation, the Lamb's book of life. It means belonging to Jesus Christ, his way, by being obedient to his word. We read in the book of Psalms that you number and record my wanderings It says, in your book, that God's got a book and he knows everything about us and he knows whether we're even in the book and he knows that we're wrong, that we will be blotted or rubbed out of the book. In the book of Psalm 69, it says, 
Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and the book of life and be not enrolled among the uncompromisingly righteous, those upright and in right standing with God. It's saying here that the only ones in the book of the living and the book of life, which is one and the same book, are those that are uncompromisingly righteous in their relationship with God. They're standing right with God because they've obeyed the gospel and they're walking in the ways of the Lord. Let's have a look back to chapter 8 of Romans. A few more things we'll just try and cover over the next few minutes as we're looking to finish off. Romans chapter 8. We'll leave a bit out of this for time as well. Verse 16. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it's called the spirit of adoption in the scriptures. You're adopted into the family of God. And we read here the spirit itself that you receive. It beareth witness with our spirit within us that we are now the children of God. And if we are children of God, then we're heirs, we're heirs of God and we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. This is because our name is in his book, in the Lamb's book of life. And if so be that we suffer with him and we'll have our troubles and our difficulties in life, he suffered. But he suffered, as we read there at the end of verse 17, that we may be glorified together. He was glorified by the Father when he went back to heaven. And we will be glorified exactly the same way. He says, For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. We're just waiting for the second coming. That's what that's all about. What we suffer won't be compared with the glory we'll get when Jesus comes back. We are expecting, we're waiting, we're standing, we're acknowledging all that Christ has done for us and we're looking up. It's the way the Bible encourages us to look. Let's have a look in Philippians chapter 3. I just want to cover a few little points. Philippians in chapter 3, back to that. In verse 8, Paul writing here, giving his own uh, testimony and warning of those that are false teachers that don't hold the word of God we read here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 8 it says yea doubtless and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but done that I might win Christ so he's saying look what I've left behind in my life And I've lost lots of things in the natural because of what I believe in. But he says they're just like refuse for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to win Christ and I don't care what I go through. I want to win him in my life. And be found in him, verse 9, and not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is uh, through faith or the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I might may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable uh, unto his death, if it by any means I might attain the righteousness of the dead. So he says, I'm doing it all that I'm going to raise one day. Paul, despite his natural credentials, and we could have looked at the fact that he was one of the greatest uh, uh, teachers or one of the greatest teachers of the law taught him, 
as a Pharisee, and it was nothing compared to what he had. He had his natural credentials, but he saw that God specialized in salvation. He saw that Jesus Christ was the one. He saw the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And when it talks about knowing him, it means that we've got to comprehend. We've got to become more acquainted with. And, of course, none of us do know the power of the resurrection yet. We're still alive. Paul didn't know, but he was looking forward to it. And we'll have no concept of time, even if we pass from this life, before the Jesus Christ returns. It tells us here in verse 20, we'll look at a couple of other verses quickly. It says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Saviour, at the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, who shall change our vile body, our fleshly body, that he might fashion it alike unto his glorious body, the body when he rose from the dead, the spiritual body, whereby he is able to subdue all things, even uh, to subdue all things unto himself. He had this power, he had this ability, he overcame, he was glorified in heaven, and so because he did what God asked him to do, God sent down the Holy Spirit that we can become part of the body of Christ, that we can become a joint heir with the Lord at Jesus Christ, exactly the same way as we're reading of here. First Peter in chapter 4 in verse 11. It says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of the words of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you shall be glad also with exceeding joy. And if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part is glorified. And we often find this when we go and witness for the Lord, that people really reproach the name of Christ. They, they speak against us and what we believe in. And he's spoken evil of. But the Bible says, rejoice, be happy, because of what you have, that the spirit of glory dwells upon you. But none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or a busybody in other men's matters. Yea, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on that behalf. For the time is to come when judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us, what shall be the end of them that know not or obey not the gospel of God. So we have this understanding that we need to be prepared. The judgment must begin with us that are in the house of God. Verse 19 is put this way. Therefore those who are ill-treated and suffer in accordance with God's will must do right and commit their souls in charge as a deposit to the one that, who created them and who will never fail them. God will never fail us. I was going to look at a few other things, but I want to just sort of make mention. I mentioned it some years ago, a little story of a dog. 
little dog named Hachi. Some might remember the story. This little dog in Japan had an owner that he was faithful and loved. It's a true story. And this little dog, Hachi, used to go with his master every morning to the railway station. And he'd sit there as he saw his master go off. And every night exactly when the train was due, Hachi would be back sitting on the same spot. And when he saw his father, uh, his master's form, the tail would start to wag and he'd be so thrilled to see his master. One day after a few years, he died. The master died. And Hachi didn't understand this, of course. But for ten years, he went to the same spot every morning and every night. At the end of that time, he became so well known that the Japanese government erected a little statue to Hachi at the very spot that he waited faithfully for his master. I still say the little thought I want to finish on is if a dog can be faithful to his master even when he was not there, that must also be our testimony. To be faithful unto the end, the same shall be saved. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God and all the people see him. 